Today at Reader's Corner, David McCloskey, author of the new novel Moscow X. I'm Bob Kustrin. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, David McCloskey talks with us about his thrilling new novel, Moscow X. The book follows CIA officers Sia and Max as they enter Russia undercover, targeting Vladimir Putin's private money man. It's a thrilling story of modern espionage set against the real-world backdrop of a shadow war between the United States and Russia. David McCloskey is a former CIA analyst who worked in field stations across the Middle East, briefing senior White House officials and Arab royalty. He is the author of the 2021 novel, Damascus Station, which I also highly recommend. David McCloskey, welcome to Reader's Corner. Bob, thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Well, David, as our listeners have probably figured out by now, uh, I read spy novels every chance I get. Uh, Very few of them find their way onto Reader's Corner because I understand that readers have different interests and um, I don't want to monopolize their time. But when uh, your first novel, Damascus Station, came out, I read it and really enjoyed it. And then Moscow X comes out, and I really got into this one and decided it was time to get you on Reader's Corner and talk about this. So many interesting things to talk about. But perhaps the first is your background, because you are uh, quite suited to write a novel like this, having served as a former CIA analyst. Uh, Why don't you Tell us about that and how that informs your work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I joined the CIA relatively uh, young. I was actually part of an undergrad intern program through my college uh, that I got into when I was a sophomore. I did two summers there, and it's actually probably not a very well-known uh, program, but you know, you join up and go for a couple summers in college, and they fully vet you through the whole process. So I did the polygraph, medical, psych exam, all that stuff, got in started working on Syria, which was kind of random. Uh, the guy who had come and recruited me on campus ran the Middle East analytics shop. And so he put me on one of his teams. I worked on Syria for those two summers and started doing that full time after I joined and really worked on Syria from different angles, but uh, pretty much just on that country and uh, you know, kind of the neighboring region uh, for my whole time at CIA. So That experience, you know, Syria over the course of those years went from being a relatively stable, autocratic Middle Eastern government with whom we had a number of problems to a country that descended into, you know, protest movement, state breakdown, civil war. And that experience of living in Damascus for pieces of that time, for working on that account, really the entire time I was at the CIA became the emotional fuel in the setting for that first spy novel, Damascus Station, of course, which much of it takes place inside Syria. So I I knew I wanted, you know, I started to kind of write after I left the agency and it didn't feel to me like there was anything else I wanted to write about when it came to fiction other than Syria. Well, you've certainly moved beyond that uh, into Russia uh, with just this in, incredible thriller. wonder if you could help us. You're, you were an analyst, but there are also operations officers. Um, help our listeners understand the difference between those two jobs in the CIA. Yeah. So an operations officer or a case officer 
many of, and those are, you know, really the, the CIA protagonists of my novels are, are, are case officers. Right. Those people are spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, and handling human assets, spies, people who live in Russia, they live in Syria, they live in Iran, they live in name your place, who have access to information that we would like. And of course, those governments would prefer we didn't have. So an operations officer is doing the really the business of recruitment, of running human sources. An analyst, you know, I like to think about it actually as clandestine or classified journalism in many respects. I'm writing a story for a policymaker. It could be the president. It could be someone at the Department of State that could be a senior officer at CIA. Um, and that story is answering a specific question that someone might have that's relevant to, you know, the world, uh, foreign policy, the United States standing in the world. So with Syria, the example I'd give is, you know, when, when the protest movement began, the key question on everyone's mind was, well, how long can Bashar al-Assad, you know, can he survive this? Yeah. Uh, what are the different scenarios? And so an analyst is taking all source information. I'm taking that human intelligence the case officers have, taking signals intelligence, which are, you know, intercepts of phone calls, faxes, text messages, emails, taking satellite imagery, the, the stuff that's available commercially and then stuff that's not. Um, and I'm putting that full picture together to answer that question. So those those jobs are very, you know, we tend to sort of lump CIA officers, I think, kind of into maybe one bucket or so if we're talking yeah. about the Hollywood representation, but there's actually, you know, many jobs at mm. CIA. So you sit down to write a novel and you are an absolute wealth of information about what's going on inside the CIA. And I understand that once you're finished with a novel like yours, uh, you have to run it by what is called the CIA's publication review board. Did you do that? That's right. Do- yes. Yeah. I did. I did. They yeah. they have to clear pretty much anything you write that's relevant to your work at CIA. So they clear resumes, they clear novels, they clear op-eds, book reviews, you know. Um, and that shop is actually, you know, you kind of might think from the outside, oh, it's slow, it's a it's a terrible process. And my experience was actually just just the opposite. You know, they're they're very efficient. They read the novels quickly. I like to think that maybe the person there has just really enjoyed them. And so they get through it pretty <laughs> rapidly. Um, but in any case, they get they get back to me relatively quickly. Now, I have sourced the heck out of these things. So, you know, I'm cognizant, especially with Damascus Station, that I'm coming to that topic with a wealth of classified information in my brain that would be, you know, irresponsible to put out there in the public realm. And yeah. so I was very careful to source, you know, here's where I got this piece of information about the president of Syria. Here's where I got this piece of information about this type of, you know, this, this Syrian sure. scientific studies center, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, everything's got to go through the, through the PRB. Uh, is, is that a process where you're sitting down with them and you're going over this or do they just send you something back saying, take this out and that? And how long does it take? Does it, does it take substantial time of yours? You know, I think both the case of Damascus Station and Moscow X, they got back to me within a matter of a week or two. So pretty rapid, you know, I mean, these are, these are novels that are 130,000 words. So it's not a significant lift for some poor person to read it. Um, so they get it back to you. There's really no back and forth kind of conversation. They literally send back. It's, it's actually kind of 
humorous. So I send them, <laughs> you know, a human style word document, right? That's got the manuscript in it. And what comes back are a series of PDFs. It's all chunked up into PDFs. It's all mysteriously in caps. So they, whatever program they're using to sort of filter it into their systems, I don't know, but it <laughs> returns everything all in caps. And it literally has the stuff you can't uh, publish crossed out in black highlighter. So it kind of looks like it came out of a time machine from 1964. It's, it's quite fun. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the book itself, uh, about your two protagonists. They are two CIA operatives, uh, very different in many ways. Sia and Max, they go into Russia, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, as undercover agents. Uh, could you share with us their, the, the backgrounds of these? So just, Again, just to give our listeners some idea of what we're talking about here, we're careful not to give away uh, any of the great uh, endings of these books. But uh, in the meantime, we do want them to know something about the setup. Why don't you give that to us? And also about Anna, who plays another critical role in your novel. So the CIA officers and Anna, the, the Russian intelligence officer in this novel, are of a bit of a different breed from the case officers in Damascus Station. So it's it's been very typical throughout really the you know the entire history of CIA that the vast majority of the espionage work is being done by case officers who are under diplomatic cover, right? They work out of an embassy in a foreign country, typically under cover as a State Department officer, a consular officer, someone in the political section. My protagonist in Damascus Station was doing just that. In this novel, Sia Fox is a CIA officer, uh, but she's an officer under non-official cover, what we would call a knock. Just to interrupt you there, just so we, we draw the difference, is it not the fact that if you're under official cover and you're caught, you're likely to be escorted out of the country? But if you're an officer under non-official cover, you're in trouble. That's right. If you are there working ostensibly, you know, in Syria as a member of the economic section and you have a diplomatic passport, um, and you were caught in the act of, of, in some operational act, you'll probably be held for a few hours and then, uh, declared persona non grata, PNG'd and tossed out of the country. And that would be an unpleasant experience, but it's very unlikely to result in you being held indefinitely or worse. When you are an officer under non-official cover, those same rules don't apply. You have no diplomatic status or immunity of any kind. You're effectively a private citizen who is there, you know, in whatever hostile country, and you have been caught in the act of espionage. You know, that is a very dicey proposition. And in this book, Moscow X, uh, Sia Fox is this lawyer under uh, non-official cover. She works at a London law firm that that hides the the wealth and assets of the super rich, and then her who becomes kind of her operational partner, Max Castillo, who is a uh, horse breeder and dealer from northern Mexico, also effectively a CIA knock. They go to Russia, and and part of the tension of this novel is that if they are caught conducting espionage in Russia, they would never have any hope of of getting out, most likely, and and so the stakes for these knocks are, are, are much higher when they're mm -hmm. working in hostile environments. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is David McCloskey, author of the new novel, Moscow X. And can we assume that there are, on this day, a number of people across the planet uh, who are 
the kinds of people that Sia and Max are working in Russia, for example? I think it's fair to say that there are, yeah, that that, that is yeah. the case around the world today. Now, I will say that I have chosen covers for these characters that are probably a bit more gilded and dramatic than your typical knock. So, you know, Sia is working at this very, you know, shady, but wealthy law firm. Max has this horse farm that's been in the family and been kind of a joint venture with CIA for decades. You know, I, I won't say that such things don't exist, but I think the the profile for, you know, most knocks is probably far more, um, normal <laughs> than those <Yeah>. two. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that you, you mentioned uh, Max and his horse form. I, I'm reading about horse breeding in your novel, uh, actually learning quite a bit that I didn't quite understand <laughs> about how, how that actually happens. Uh, we won't go into that on the air, that's for sure. But uh, I, is, this, is this because you are, in fact, uh, uh, an aficionado of thoroughbred racing horses, or did you just one day decide, I'm going to make this all up and I'll talk to whoever it is I need to talk to to become an expert on horse breeding? <laughs> well, I sort of, uh, I, I wish that I had begun this adventure as an aficionado with a deep bench of knowledge to, to bring to bear. Because what the real kind of gritty truth of this was, as I was setting this story up, I realized that I, I needed... You know, I needed there to be an opportunity for my CIA officers and my Russians to spend time together, ideally in Russia. And that's a difficult thing to script realistically, unless right. you're using knocks. And then I'm thinking about what's the cover for, you know, what, what's the what's the setup for these knocks such that they sure. could have uninterrupted time. And I came up with the idea of horseback riding and then it went from there and before i knew it i you know i was like oh crap i now have to do you know a tremendous amount of research on this if it's going to end up being this kind of you know platform uh for the for the plot so i did a tremendous amount of research and interview work to try to make that piece of the novel feel real hopefully i've succeeded yeah, I think you did. Uh, while we're on what, what's real and what isn't, uh, the, uh, officer who is, uh, not uh, under official cover, the knock, as you call her, uh, she must take the one target tradecraft course. T-O-T-T, -T, tot. Mm. Uh, is that real or <laughs> is that, who knows, another fiction in David McCloskey's <laughs> bag of tricks? That is not what it, the course is called, uh -huh. but that course is real. I see. Um, and, and it is something that any officer who is deploying to a particularly difficult area would, would take. And now, obviously, my rendering of it is fictional, and there's elements of reality kind of scattered in there. But that, that's a real thing. It's just it's not called, think of the novel, I called it, the tier, yeah, TOT, right? Tier 1 Target Tradecraft. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's different in real life, but there is something quite similar to that that really does exist. Yeah. Well, you know, you're pointing out or maybe I'm pointing out what I think is so enjoyable about your book. And, and that is running across these moments when you stop and you think, I wonder if that's really the way it works. Or <laughs> is this is this what he came up with? And here's here's one for you that's out of left field until you see where I'm going with it. Uh, it's about that CIA enhanced cliff bar. Now, 
Here's what's interesting, and you probably do not know, David. The Cliff Bar is made in Idaho, right where... I wow, <laughs> I did not know that. Okay, right. that's interesting. Right where it's also made in Indianapolis, but we're going to take credit for it today. It's it's right here in, in Idaho, and they have a major office in Twin Falls, Idaho, and not just an office where they also make the product. Um, so it's a CIA-enhanced Cliff Bar, and... I was absolutely fascinated by this one because the premise for this is that, hey, if you're going to, if you're going to be an officer going into Russia, we know one thing about Russians. They like their vodka and they drink a lot of it. And therefore you're going to be in situations where, well, I'm going to stop there and let you tell the rest of the story. <laughs> and then at the end of the story, it just, just this little piece of the, of, of the novel, I don't think it gives anything away. But at the end of the story, then you can tell us how much of this you made up and how much of this actually, I have a feeling this was made up, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm reluctant to reveal, but I, I will. But so let me, I'll, I'll back up for folks who haven't read the novel and just kind of tee this, tee this yeah, up. So sure. as you've said, one of the things that came up consistently when I spoke with CIA officers who had spent time in Russia, spent a lot of time with Russians, had tried to recruit Russians was and it just came up really organically and consistently was that there would be these experiences where a russian uh, would open a bottle of vodka and many of the and i think this is maybe less the case now but it used to be the case that the 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 vodka bottles were like single use like you took the cap off and it didn't like screw back on it was intended <laughs> to be consumed in one sitting yeah. and so the agency officers would have to you know, get through these dinners with the Russians or, or longer asset meetings or whatever it might be, you know, in a state of like, you know, semi or total intoxication because it would have been considered sort of rude or would have, would have, um, negatively impacted the atmosphere to not, uh, imbibe along with the Russians. And so this came up constantly. And as I was writing the story, I thought it would be fun because we have, you know, Sia and Max who Max has really no experience. Uh, dealing with Russians or being in Russia and Sia hasn't been before um, either. And so they're sort of newbies to this. I thought it'd be fun to play around with this idea of how do you, how do you prepare yourself for a situation where you're going to have to be really buttoned up, but you're also going to be drunk. And so I thought of this idea of, well, what if there's a, you know, an agency officer who helps prepare them by offering these sort of um, doctored cliff bars that have a tremendously high caloric intake and that allow you to sort of fortify your stomach before you, you drink. Uh, and I will tell you that I completely made that up. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's entirely false. And it's, it's one of the fun things about writing the books the way that I, that I hope I am, which is you, you get into this story and I've set enough uh, groundwork for authenticity, the real feel of the world, such that I can be permitted these flights of fancy uh, and fantasy periodically throughout the novel. And you're maybe as the reader uncertain uh, what's real and what's not, but at some point, maybe you don't care. You're just along for the ride. Absolutely. And that's the, way, that's the way I looked at it without question. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was going to be talking to you for a half an hour about this book, we wouldn't even be talking about these little examples, <laughs> but, but it, uh, it makes it so much fun. So, uh, let's talk about something that is real and it's in your novel and it enters your novel, uh, through Anna Agrapov. 
the Russian agent, uh, and I want you to tell us about her. But here's the part that I wanted to emphasize and and get your comments on. Uh, Anna has a very interesting take on on Russia. Uh, she's really not interested in changing Russia, and and she says something like, you know, uh, it's unrealistic to think the day will come when Putin steps aside, another Gorbachev moves Russia toward democracy. Um, I come away with the impression that. The way Anna looks at it may be the way most Russians look at it. And frankly, on this one, how do we know? Because we usually rely on polls to tell us how people think in nations across the globe, including America. But in Russia, we don't know whether or not anybody can speak honestly enough in a poll uh, to get the, the real skinny on on what their thought is. But I guess the question is, again, Tell us about Anna, but then the question is, uh, are we walking away from this particular uh, part of your novel thinking that, yeah, you know, there's no passion for democracy when you get uh, past folks like Navalny and Mm. uh, the visions of grandeur, the empire that Putin talks about all the time, uh, just may make it very, very difficult for us to imagine how we get out of this Putin-esque type Russia. Your thoughts? Well, Anna is a very interesting character. And I think, you know, she's probably, to me, one of the most interesting in the novel. So she, she's a Russian version of Sia. She's an officer of their foreign intelligence service, the SVR. She's also a banker. So she's a, she's a Russian knock. She's in a very well connected, uh, family, very well off. She's in a relationship with her husband that is abusive and she, you know, it's kind of her father is a guy who, you know, she's got a sometimes warm relationship with, but sometimes manipulative relationship with, but she also feels very duty bound to the family. So there's a lot of different things pushing down on Anna. The other one, as you mentioned, is this idea of, you know, what does it mean to be a Russian patriot in the current system? And what is she willing to do or maybe even said differently, how does she define her own personal sense of freedom and dignity and self-worth? And what does that look like for her? What I came, as I as I did more, as I discovered her character and then just did a lot more research on what do Russians think about the government, about the state, you know, about maybe even more directly what's going on in Ukraine right now. You know, it's, it's sort of a, it's a very fascinating topic because we as Americans, I think, have a very full-throated view of what does personal freedom mean? What does dignity mean? What does self-worth mean? What does it mean to be free? You know, And I would say many Russians don't share our definitions of those things. You know, um, Russians have a view of the state that is very different from our view of our government. You know, they see their own government as being sort of highly corrupt and predatory, but also the only source of potential wealth and influence and access. So there's sort of this weird paradoxical relationship with the state. It's sort of loathed and despised, but also worshipped at the same time. And the definition that many Russians have of their own sort of personal freedom is, you know, they're not looking for full rights and, and you know, or anything like that. They're sort of looking to get what they can um, and to eke out very small personal victories, many of which could be silent that enabled them to feel like a full person and to feel dignified in what they're doing and in their lives. 
And so Anna's character, you know, when she's considering her relationship with with Sia and Max and CIA is not defining uh, her goals as being the overthrow of Putin as freedom in Russia. I think many Russians come at those questions and think about the 90s. They think about other periods of of political transition that have in fact been chaos or the failure of the state and led to the immiseration of many people in Russia. They look at that kind of possibility and think, oh, I don't want that at all. But what I want is to get my own. Uh, and so Anna's quest really becomes more about that than it does about any massive kind of goal to to bring freedom and democracy to Russia. So her character, you know, she's got some dark sides to her, uh, for sure. But I hope that readers are really interested in how she navigates this system and all these constraints to try to get some agency for herself in the end. Yeah, well, I think you've succeeded there. Today, I'm speaking with David McCloskey, author of the new novel, Moscow X. The book centers on a daring CIA operation which targets Putin's private banker. Let's talk about Spike Tradecraft. Uh, you have quite a bit uh, in here that's so fascinating to uh, read just how spies avoid being detected, the devices they use to get information. I think I read somewhere, and I don't. I wish I could uh, cite it, but I can't. I read somewhere that Lakari-type novels are yesterday's news, given the digital age in which we live. Um, I read your novel, and I thought, you know, I think it, there's still room for both, it seems. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could could comment on how the business of spying has changed in the digital age. Uh, and by the way, I might add that I think at least one of your reviewers mentioned that uh, you've written a Lakare type novel. By that, they mean somebody who really has spying down. And I'm guessing that every author who's ever written a novel like yours wants to be mentioned in in terms of Lacare, <laughs> because that, that that's the gold standard right there. And uh, and as I said, I think your reviews measure up to that. But anyway, what about it? Well, I think I do think it's true that right now the spy game, and in particular. What I'm talking about is the gathering and, and, you know, collection of really human intelligence, right? So interacting with other people who have secrets. That business, it has been fundamentally changed to its core. Uh, I think it's the changes that we have seen in particular across and we can get into it, but, you know, really the technological changes that we've seen over the past couple decades have fundamentally upended the game of, of human intelligence and what it's done. And, and really, you know, it's, it's more complicated than this, but it's essentially the connection of a tremendous amount of, of sensors everywhere, phones everywhere, the ability to collect and store data for long periods of time and to analyze that data really quickly and much more effectively. What all that has done is made it so that the relationship uh, with time when you can think about human is totally different now. So it used to be the case that if you ran like in Damascus station, a surveillance detection route, and you were sure that you weren't being followed and you went to meet with your agent and you have the meeting and you come home, you know, you can sleep easy. No longer. It's very possible that an opposing service could detect that later, months later, by looking through data, looking through telco data, looking through 
sensors that they can collect, cameras, you know, all of those things. The nature of time has been totally changed when it comes to gathering human intelligence. The, the kinds of information that are available now are so different from what they were even 10 years ago. So now with, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's biometrics at airports, whether it's cameras everywhere and the ability to collect a massive amount of information about you, your face, how you move, the amount you can know about an opposing services, intelligence officers, or its citizenry is tremendous. And it used to be the case in, you know, in most of John Le Carre's novels, you see this, it, there's officers working for uh, the circus who have alias passports and travel in alias and use work names um, to meet with people clandestinely in an alias. That kind of stuff is tremendously difficult now, given how much information is available. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole business has changed. And I think, though, that what makes these stories so compelling and I'm talking here about just spy novels in general, really hasn't. You know, we're talking about people, characters who are in extremely high stakes situations. And you want, you know, a great spy novel still deals really authentically uh, and dramatically with those characters. And so there's a balance here, I think, for authors writing in the genre today of how do you how do you show some of those real changes that have occurred in the technological landscape and how that's impacted tradecraft, but at the same time, really set up a world where, you know, the characters are first and they're, they're the, you know, the reason why readers keep flipping the pages because we want to know what happens to these interesting characters. So I think, I think it's a real balance and I am, you know, I, I don't think you could write. I don't, I think John Le Carre, if he were still writing today, would and, and uh, you know, kind of need to deal with that world, you know, to, to get to the real character work that makes his stories and novels so compelling. The reader doesn't get very far into your novel when a CIA deputy chief of station and his family are victims of what is described as a Russian-directed energy attack. Now, that took me down a rabbit hole because I remembered in real life the Havana syndrome uh, which, uh, was named because it happened in the, it happened to people, I guess, in the, in the embassy in, uh, in Cuba. Um, in your book, it's described as microwaves frying your brain. Um, there, there's been some conclusions drawn that debunk, uh, any, any great, um, enemy strategy here. And they call it psychogenetic, meaning it happened, but it is probably psychosomatic. Do you have any thoughts on that, having having served, and what's really going on there with these folks who come down with these uh, conditions? Yeah, and I'll, I'll you know I say all of this as someone who is outside right now, who's not yeah. reading the intel, and sure. who also has an open mind to changing this opinion um, as more information comes out. But my view would be that of the total population of Americans who have come forward claiming to have been the victims of a directed energy attack, that many of the cases are psychosomatic, but that there is a small percentage of very real cases where Americans, intelligence officers, you know, diplomats have been targeted by a hostile intelligence service with a tool that is effectively highly harmful microwave radiation Now, I'm very open to the idea that the purpose of that in some cases has actually been to collect 
signals intelligence. So there are, there are devices that would be used and have been used by the Russians, you know, for a long time to pump microwave radiation in a very targeted space in order to collect, you know, phone data, stuff off computers, phone calls, right? And a side effect of that is, is, is that you could really, you know, do great harm to someone's brain. So I'm, I'm open to the idea that this didn't really begin as an attempt to harm Americans, but I think it's, it's actually been a very positive side effect for the Russians um, and for any hostile service that has, you know, experimented with this to see the chaos that it has induced among, you know, inside the bureaucracy. And I think after you're kind of looking at what's occurred, you'd have to say, you know, this has been a pretty effective, a pretty effective tool, even if it's only been really used on a small number of that total population. That's where I'm at right now. I understand there's a lot of, you know, controversy around this and frankly, a lot of just political narratives around it, but that's, that's my view at least. Well, David, we've uh, run out of time, but that's probably a good thing because I think we've told our uh, listeners just enough uh, that they need to go out and buy this book, uh, Moscow X by David McCloskey. David has been our guest today at Reader's Corner. David, I want to thank you for writing the book. Is there another one coming out soon, I hope? Well, I I will say this. The third one is done, locked and loaded, and... um pretty much sold we haven't yet great put the ink on the contract but we've got it worked out so that that book is likely to be out next fall the fall of 2024 well we look forward to it thank you so much for joining us today at reader's corner thanks bob great to be with you reader's corner is presented by boise state public radio news the engineer for today's show is eric jones with production by joel wayne i'm bob Custra. please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed. Because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to Life Kit from NPR.